Today, there is a growing interest in the subject of angels. One poll suggests that nearly eight out of ten Americans believe in angels. Time magazine reported that 46% of Americans believe that they have a guardian angel, and 32% say they have felt an angelic presence at some point. If you take a look at the New York Times bestseller lists over the last number of years, there are a number of books that have been on the subject of angels. But often a fascination with angels has become a substitute for the worship of the true God of the Bible. And I bring this to our attention because this was also true in the first century church. Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 2.18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and not holding fast to the truth or to the head who is Christ. And we also find this test tendency to focus on angels among those that are addressed in the book of Hebrews. We've embarked upon this series studying this book called Pressing On Because of the Supremacy of Christ. And the believers that are being addressed in this letter are largely Jewish Christians, probably living in Rome. And because of growing persecution from the Jews and their government, many were tempted to turn from believing in Christ to believing back in the old ways of the Old Testament. And so the author writes this epistle to encourage them to press on in their faith in Jesus Christ. And he does so by showing them the superiority of Christ. The superiority of Christ in the Old Testament over the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And in chapter 1, as we've looked at verses 1 through 3 so far, the author began saying that Jesus is God's last and complete revelation of himself. He's the ultimate prophet. And then he gives seven reasons why Jesus is superior. But in our text today, in verses 4 through 14, he tells us why Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, it might seem really odd and out of place that the author would switch to talking about angels and would spend several paragraphs on this subject. And so, I want to talk about angels and why the issue is addressed here. There was some sort of angel worship or angel veneration that had crept into the church there in Rome. Bible scholars tell us it may have been the influence of a Jewish sect called the Essenes. You might know that name. This group was largely responsible for hiding scrolls of the Old Testament in caves around the Dead Sea that we found called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essenes believed that a messianic age was coming, but there would be three separate messiahs. A Messiah king, a Messiah prophet, and a Messiah priest. But above those prophets, kings, and, and, and priests, or those three messiahs, there would be the archangel Michael, 
who would come and rule the whole restoration of Israel in fulfillment of the promises of the new covenant. So Bible scholars believe that this was perhaps seeping into the early church in that region. Now, angels do play an important part in the Bible. Angels are mentioned over a hundred times in the Old Testament, over 160 times in the New Testament. They are created heavenly beings, holy beings, and they're there's a vast number of them. We're told in Revelation chapter 5, 11, they're described as assembling in a great throng, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. In most cases, angels are invisible, but occasionally they become visible, either in a vision or in person to certain individuals. Now in Scripture, when an angel would visit someone, it was almost always alarming. The angel would often have to say, once it appears, fear not. If an angel appeared in our presence right now, what do you think we would do? We would fall down on our faces in fear and trembling. Ordinarily, when they would make themselves visible, they would have human-like appearances. The Hebrew and Greek word for angel both means messenger. And so they are primarily message bearers of God. They also have immense power. They continually worship and praise God in His presence. They minister to believers. And they are going to be agents in the final earthly judgments of the second coming of Christ. But despite their excellencies, their significance dwells, or dwindles rather, in the presence of Christ. And this is the grand theme of our text today. And so follow along with me as I read verses 4 through 14 out of Hebrews chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Thus far, 
the reading of God's word. Well, because of the immense pressure that these Jewish Christians were under, they were tempted to compromise their faith in Christ as God and Savior. Now, if they would just agree that Jesus was not God, and perhaps just equal with the angels, they might be accepted back into the synagogues and escape the awful pressure of being ostracized and persecuted by their countrymen. This kind of pressure is still with us today. We are pressured by our culture more and more not to believe that Jesus is God and the only Savior of mankind. We're pressured to view Him only as a great prophet, only as a great teacher and leader. Maybe even on a par with the angels, but not God. And so we're going to see from our text today the six ways that Jesus is superior to the angels and the impact that this ought to have on our lives as we think and as we live our lives in this world today. The writer of Hebrews creates a mosaic of seven Old Testament texts that powerfully demonstrate the superiority of Christ over the angels. The first is found in verses 4 through 5. And in this text, we see, number one, Jesus is superior because of his name. He says in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In Bible times, your name indicated the essence of, of your character, your reputation. And here the author says, the name Jesus has inherited is much superior and more excellent than the angels. Cindy and I went shopping for paint recently because we had our house painted. And when you look at different paint brands, they usually have them categorized as good, better, best. And yet I've never come across a category like not very good, terrible, more superior. You know, if you came across those categories, you'd pick more superior every time. Superior, more superior means better, means vastly better, means above all in rank. And the author demonstrates this claim in verse 5, by quoting two Old Testament passages. What's the name that he's referring to that has been given to Christ? Psalm 2 is a famous messianic psalm. And the author quotes from verse 7. He writes, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He's referring to the name or the title of son. Now Jesus always had this title. He was always the Son of God. He was the Son of God from eternity past. But when did God say to His Son, today I have begotten you? Well, of course, we remember when He was baptized and we, and, and we heard that God said, this is my Son. We also know that when He experienced the transfiguration, God said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. 
But Paul says in Romans 1.4 that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This was declared on earth and manifested in the full when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And then Paul also says in Acts chapter 13, 32 through 33, that the resurrection of Christ fulfilled Psalm 2, verse 7. And then the writer also quotes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, when he says, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This was a well-known messianic passage in which the prophet Nathan tells David that after his death, his son will build the temple and he will establish a royal throne that will endure forever. And things are said of this heir that could not be true of any mere man, any mere descendant of David. It could only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the infinite God-man, the greater son of David who would come and fulfill this promise. This was the prophecy that Jesus would be the son of his father and that his father would call him his dear son. And then we look at verse 6. We're given the second argument, namely that Jesus is superior because he is worshipped. Because he is worshipped. To prove this, the writer cites two passages or maybe this Maybe one of the two. Psalm 97.7 and Deuteronomy 32.45 both make the statement that he quotes here when he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now that phrase, when he brings the firstborn into the world, refers to the incarnation of Christ, his first advent. And you recall one of the most spectacular parts of his birth was when the choirs of angels appear singing praise that night that he was born. But in Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, it reveals that the angels in heaven worship the Son who is on his throne, the Lion and the Lamb. Jesus is described the firstborn also because he inherits all that his father has. And he's also the firstborn of a resurrected new race of human beings. The point is that Jesus is worshipped by the angels because he is God. The angels don't worship anything but God except for those fallen angels and Satan. The third argument the writer shows us is Jesus is superior because of his eternal rule. His eternal rule. We see this in verses 7 through 9. He cites Psalm 104, which we read earlier in our worship service. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flame, a flame of fire. This is referring to angels. God creates and deploys his angels to execute his divine commands with swiftness like the wind, with power like fire. If an angel were before us right now, we would not want to toy with an angel. 
But as great and as glorious as they are, they minister. They are servants of Christ who sits on his throne. Christ is the one who has eternal rule and authority. And the writer in verses 8 and 9 therefore quotes Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7, which exalts in Christ's rule. He writes, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This was originally addressed to King David but in language that could not be fulfilled by any mere human being. One can't help but notice here that the Son is addressed as God on His throne. No king could live up to that acclamation. His throne will never end. The scepter of His authority will be executed with righteousness. Jesus is the only perfect, righteous king. The Son who is called God, is anointed by God with the oil of joy. Does that sound familiar? You remember when the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 2 says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus experienced joy when he ascended back to heaven, knowing that he had brought his people salvation. Christ's enthronement was central in the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. You recall Isaiah 9 that we quote a lot during Christmas time. 9, 6 through 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You remember when the angel told Mary that she would have a boy and this would be a virgin-born son. And the angel told her in Luke 1.32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The fourth argument that the author of Hebrews brings forth is that Jesus is superior because he is the eternal creator. Here the author quotes Psalm 102 verses 25 through 27, which contains a broken man's rising awareness and celebration of God's transcendent existence. And it says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of Your hands. They will perish, but You remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Here, the writer of Hebrews is attributing this quote from Psalm 102 to Jesus. These 
incommunicable attributes of God, that He is creator, that He is eternal, that He is immutable, unchangeable, that He is all-powerful. It's hard to imagine a more emphatic portrayal of Christ's divinity. A striking contrast between creation and the Son of God. I was reminded of this passage the other day when Cindy and I were cleaning out our closet. You know, uh, we were getting ready for our family reunion and our kids coming in and staying in our home and it's an opportunity to just clean. And that's what we do when our kids, right before our kids come. We clean before they come and we clean after they come. But we were cleaning out the closet and I found all these old suits of mine. And, you know, you've seen me over 32 years and, you know, I've gotten big and smaller, big and smaller. You know, that's, that's what I do. And I have suits of three different sizes. And I have suits that my father uh, passed down to me. And a lot of these suits are tattered. And I don't know how moths have gotten into our closet, but they have over the years. And there are holes in these suits. So, So a lot of them I had to just roll up and throw away. Well, that's what Jesus is going to do to the heavens and the earth when he returns Jesus will come again and judge the world. Creation will be rolled up like an old worn out garment and replaced with a new one. But Jesus will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. The fifth argument of superiority over the angels is that Jesus is superior because of his destiny. Because of his destiny. While I was writing this sermon, at this point, I heard that Queen Elizabeth had died at age 96. Her rule was the longest of any British monarch, lasting 30% of the time the United States has been in existence. And it was mainly a symbolic rule, but an important one, stabilizing her country and, and really in many respects the world. But it was the end of her reign, another indication that rulers and presidents and dictators will come and go. Kingdoms will rise and fall, but there is only one who remains in ultimate power forever and ever. In verse 13, the author cites the last of Old Testament texts in this section with the opening words of Psalm 110, when he says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament, quoted 25 times because of what it tells us about where Jesus went when he departed this earth and ascended back to heaven. He sits on the right hand of God the Father. What does that communicate? It communicates his supremacy. It communicates that It's his singular honor and dignity and rank and power and authority to be ruler over the kingdom. Christ has been given absolute rulership over all. This is not said of any of the angels. They don't sit on any thrones, only Jesus. In ancient times, it was customary for kings that had had a victory in battle to bring in the defeated king. And for that defeated king to prostrate himself before 
the conquering king. And the conquering king would put his foot on the neck of this conquered king. And then this conquered king would kiss this conquering king's feet. And so that the captive has become his footstool. And this is what it says of Jesus. That when he returns, all his enemies will be made his footstool. Jesus is on his throne right now. He's reigning. But someday every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And until then, he's on his throne ruling and defending and praying for us. Orchestrating the culmination of his kingdom. Sending forth his spirit and his word bringing in those people that he has died for before the final culmination of his kingdom. The eternal destiny and vocation of Jesus is that of ruling. But the vocation of angels is always that of serving and doing Jesus' bidding. The final argument of superiority of Jesus over the angels is point number six. Jesus is superior because of his achievement. At the conclusion of this section, the author states the contrast between angels and Christ in the form of a question. He says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? The angels are under Jesus' rule. They're doing his bidding. They're ministering. To whom? To those who will inherit salvation. One example of that is in the book of Acts, in Acts 12, when Peter was thrown in Herod's prison. And an angel was sent to release him from prison so he could continue to proclaim the gospel and encourage God's people with the word of God. God's angels are still deployed. They're still at work at the command of Christ, invisibly working to serve the Lord's purposes and to advance His kingdom. They serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. They serve, but they do not save. How do we inherit salvation? Inheriting means that it's something we receive that's a gift. It's by grace. It's not something that we earn. And it's through the Son's achievement alone that we inherit salvation, not any angel. The Bible says we don't naturally inherit salvation. In fact, what we inherit is a sinful nature. We inherit rebellion against God. And we inherit God's judgment and wrath and separation from God. Why? Because God is 100% righteous and holy and demands 100% righteousness and holiness according to his commandments and we fall short of that requirement because God is utterly holy and demands 100% obedience but also God is a perfect judge he must punish every violation every sin against his commandment in thought, word, or deed. And if we have sinned even at one point, it's as if we've sinned against all His commandments. 
And so we amass this great debt that we cannot repay. We cannot atone for our sins. We are doomed. We cannot be 100% righteous and we cannot atone for our sins except for the love and mercy of God because he made a plan to reconcile us to himself before the beginning of time by his grace alone. And he did this by the sending of his son, the second person of the Trinity, came to this earth and took on human flesh, yet without sin, and remaining God to be our substitute. He came in order to live a perfect life on our behalf so that his record of righteousness could be transferred credited to our account he also came to take on the debt the guilt of our sin on the cross as the perfect substitute sacrifice the lamb of god all our sins were laid upon him he received the justice of god on our behalf he received god's judgment and wrath on the cross as he suffered and bled and died and then on the third day he gloriously rose from the dead, validating that he was, in fact, God the Son and the Messiah, certifying that he did, in fact, purchase our salvation, and also proving that he had victory over death and the devil and sin. And so the wonderful message of the gospel is that all who, by grace, are born again, who are given new natures and then repent, turn from their sin, turn from their rebellion against God and rely on who Christ is and what he did alone for their salvation, those people are declared righteous before God forever and ever. And those people are forgiven of every single sin. And those people are adopted into God's family. They're given fellowship with God through the indwelling Holy Spirit. They are given the gift of eternal life in heaven with Christ as new resurrected human beings forever. This is Christ's achievement. This is how we inherit salvation. And so we've seen this inspired author's six-fold argument as to why Jesus is superior to the angels. You might be sitting there thinking, well, that's great, but what difference does that make? Why is that important to us? Well, let me give you four takeaways, four application points to these truths. Since he is superior to the angels and is God, the Messiah, who is the heir of all things, and he has achieved salvation for his people, I ask you, have you acknowledged your sin? Have you acknowledged your need for him as your Savior? Have you trusted in him alone for your salvation as he's offered in the gospel. The first point here is that Jesus is the only way that you are going to inherit salvation. And so I implore you, if you haven't done so already, turn from living for sin. Turn from trying to save yourself and transfer your trust to Christ and him alone for your salvation. Rest on his work alone, and you will be saved. And if you're saved, then you can know that Jesus will never change his mind about you. He has saved you once and for all. Secondly, 
we must have a Christocentric view and interpretation of Scripture. See, the writer of Hebrews is teaching us how to read the Old Testament here. We must see that Jesus is the answer to Old Testament prophecies. All Old Testament types, all prophecies point to Jesus somehow. His incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming. So in other words, to know more about God's word, to know more about God and his ways, you don't move beyond Jesus. You don't move beyond his gospel. You need to know more about Jesus. You don't need to turn your gaze to something or someone else, like angels or any other created thing. We need to focus on Christ. And that leads us to our third point. Is your worship directed at Christ alone? Maybe your problem here isn't angel worship. I doubt it. It is. But this section shows us that believers can be tempted to worship someone or something other than Christ. Even the good things or good creatures in creation, we can turn into idols, and we often do. We are not to think Christ and anything else are equals. Jesus is much superior, more excellent in every respect to every created thing or person. But you see, this is what the devil wants to do. He wants to deceive us into thinking that angels are equal or superior to Christ, or that Jesus is the first among creatures, but not God. It's a way to divert us from trusting in Christ as God and only Savior. He wants us to think that there are other saviors, there are other mediators worthy of our attention, worthy of our veneration, worthy of our worship. Satan wants to pull Jesus down in our minds. He wants to lower our view of him and to show him as less satisfying and to elevate something else. See, the lordship and deity of Christ was not something the author of Hebrews believed could be optional for Christians. No, no thing, no person is worthy of our worship except God alone. Augustine said, he values not Christ at all who does not value Christ above all. So I ask you, what or whom are you tempted to look to for your satisfaction, for your fulfillment, for your joy, for your peace? Examine your hearts today and see if you have replaced worship for Christ alone with any idol and then repent immediately and look to Christ alone and worship him alone. And we need to do this all the time. Finally, Christ is enthroned in heaven, a savior who cares for his people with omnipotent power and he will make his enemies his footstools. He reigns on behalf of his people. So the fourth point is whatever you truly need, Jesus will provide. Our reigning Lord wields omnipotent might. He overcomes all his enemies that oppose his will and reign. He sends his ministering spirits, 
his angels to minister to his people. What a comfort to know that our Lord is so busy on our behalf from heaven's seat of divine authority. We may never know how many angels he has sent to dispatch his will to protect us in our time of need, to thwart spiritual antagonists, and to strengthen us in times of weakness. But we are not to worship them, and we are not to pray to them. But we should be aware that God does use them to accomplish his good providences in our lives. And so we ought, we ought to take comfort in this. Nothing will happen to us that hasn't been ordained by God and for our good. Jesus will protect us. He will provide for us. He can deliver you anytime, anywhere he wishes. He is superior to everything and more than adequate in your hour of need. And so what we've seen here is Jesus is superior to the angels because of his name. His name is God's Son. And because he is worshipped and he has eternal rule and he is the eternal creator and his destiny is to rule forever and he has achieved salvation for our inheritance. You see, if all these things are true of Jesus and they are, then he alone is worthy of our hope, of our trust, and of our worship. If all of these are true of Jesus, then what can a soul need in time or eternity that cannot be found in Christ alone? There is nothing that you might need in all your weakness that is not found abundantly in Christ who loves you and who gave himself for you and reigns now in heaven as your Savior and Lord who remains the same today and forever. The answer to your fears, the answer to your trials, the answer to your temptations, the answer to all of your needs is seeing Christ as supreme above all else and worshiping Him. Trusting in Him with all that you have. That is how we are going to press on in the faith. In the midst of obstacles, in the midst of temptations, in the midst of this hostile world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for who you are. We admit that as we have read these passages, we have only scratched the surface of understanding, truly understanding who you are. You are God. You are our reigning Savior and authority in heaven. You have all power and authority. Please forgive us for how we turn away from you and try to find our needs in other things, other created things or people. Oh God, turn our hearts back to you. Help us to see your superiority over all things. Help us to worship only you and look to only you. Lord, the answer to our trials and the answer to our struggles is to look to you and your superiority because you are a loving God. You are our Savior King. Thank you for commanding your angels to take care of us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us and shows us more of who you are and reveals the meaning of your word to us. Oh Lord, may we leave 
from here today with encouragement of these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing our closing hymn. All hail the power of Jesus' name.